Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. But before we get into the podcast, a word from the sponsors of this episode, Chargebee. Chargebee is the leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS and subscription startups, such as Hopin, Spendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is particularly powerful for European startups to navigate complex issues such as tax compliances, invoicing, and billing regulations. The product also enables you to experiment with different pricing models and also to localize the pricing and checkout experiences. So check them out at chargebee.com. And now let's get into today's episode. My guest today is Sophie Alert, who is the co-founder and CEO of Swedish Algae Factory. Swedish Algae Factory farms a type of algae called diatoms. These single cell entities below the Arctic ice are able to thrive in low light thanks to their extraordinary ability to make their own shell of glass, which makes them a potential material for various industrial applications from solar panels to skincare products. Sophie's fascination with algae began as a biotechnology undergrad student, but it was at the Chalmers School of Entrepreneurship where she met Angela Wolf the professor of marine ecology at Gothenburg University that turned her fascination of algae into a business opportunity that can have real global impact. Long story short, in 2014, at the age of 24, Sophie co-founded the Swedish Algae Factory together with Angela, which has just finished raising their Series A funding. I'm delighted to welcome Sophie to the show and learn more about this fascinating technology and her journey so far. Thank you. Sophie, tell me a little bit about your fascination for business and entrepreneurship. Where do you think it came from? I, I think my fascination for creating a business comes from my eagerness to do something for the environment. To begin with, I'm, I'm a technologist or like an engineer and I really love technology, but I saw a real frustration that there are really good technologies that can really create an impact that are not getting out on the market that are published in articles, put in a drawer, and then nothing is happening, even though it can create immense on the world. So I saw a gap there and a frustration that I really wanted to work with. That was where my fascination for entrepreneurship and business came from, that I really saw frustration that good technologies needs to get out on the market. And that's not as easy. There's a lot of effort needed there. And I really wanted to be part of that effort. Was there anything in your upbringing that you think prepared you for a life of entrepreneurship or do you think this is something you've learned along the way? My upbringing, uh, my father and my, his brothers and my uh, granddad has been running their own businesses. It was not in uh, any high technology aspects, but that was always been a natural part of my upbringing that people are running their own businesses and that's normal. That makes sense in terms of why you went to the entrepreneurship school where you met Angela. Tell me about when you met Angela at the Chalmers School of Entrepreneurship. What is it that fascinated you about what she was doing and you thought that this is something that has commercial opportunity? When you think back at it, it almost seems like a shot of destiny. <laughs> I had studied algae during my undergrad and I was really fascinated by these organisms and what they can do in terms of sustainable technologies and the impact, the use of this raw material towards a more sustainable industry. But I saw a problem with that most of the publications, most of the studies on algae was done on algae that thrives really good 
in warm and sunny climates. And unfortunately, that's not Sweden. <laughs> but then I met Angela and she has just been on a trip to Arctic where she had sampled algae uh, under the ice. And I realized that if they can grow algae there, then we can probably make an algae industry in Sweden because I almost gave that up after the studies. But based on her uh, research on, on how these algae grow in our colder and darker climates, we found like a common interest. It was almost like a spark in that we clicked directly. We realized that we really liked to work to together. We clicked at persons and immediately we felt that we want to really create an impact and not only discuss this, we want to do something real with this. I, I always wonder about professors and people doing research. Was she looking to do something beyond like the science of the research when you met her? Or is this something that came about with a lot more convincing from your side? She, she was at that state when we met, actually thinking uh, what she can do beyond uh, publishing. She had gotten uh, her uh, reputation and was really renowned for the publications that she had done. So she felt that that was maybe not fulfilling her in that sense anymore. And she really had started to think about doing something real. So that process has already started with her. And I think that was really important for us being able to start out. And also she was really humble about the fact that she had 20 years more algae research than I had. Of course, I've done some of it and she had an immense knowledge on that. Uh, but uh, she was also really humble about like the business part. She didn't love that. <laughs> I guess we, we had the real humbleness realizing each other's strength and how we could build on that and really a respect for what the other person was doing. And I think that was really important for the start of the company that we respected each other and really trusted each other on the, the parts that we were uh, playing in, in the foundation of the company. So let me understand this. In terms of timing, you were doing your entrepreneurship studies and you met her. She's done this research. She thought there was potential. She was thinking there could be a business coming out of it. Once you realized there could be something, what was the next steps um, before you actually founded the company? So 2014 was when uh, we started the discussions. And then we actually applied for a research grant for looking into how you can grow this type of algaes in Sweden. Basically between 2014 and 2016, I would not say that we were run as a company, we were run as a research project that was investigating how to cultivate algae potential uses. Then I guess we founded a company in 2016 based on a level of understanding how to be able to cultivate these items industrially because no one had done this before. So we needed to create our own systems. And then we started to also look at this unique shell material that we saw could create a lot of interest from the industry since it's not only better for the environment, it's not replacing a certain chemical, it's actually create unique properties that synthesized materials is not doing in relation to light, but also in relation to absorption and release of different chemicals. By the end of 2016, we knew that we wanted to create a business around this shell and that would be our main product from the algae that we wanted to commercialize. Also, we knew a bit on how to grow the algae outside the lab, not only in the lab, even though we are in a modest prototype stage. And from that stage, we, we founded a company in 2016. Fantastic. So now you've made a, a prototype and you have a sense of the material coming out of algae that could have potential applications 
But I imagine there's so many different ways you could have taken that application of that shell in terms of actual commercialization opportunity. Talk to me a little bit about how you determined where to focus. If you're, I'm looking back at it, uh, we've actually, to some extent, did it wrong. <laughs> so we ended up like thinking, what, what is the coolest application we can think about of this material? And that was to use this material to increase the efficiency of solar panels. And we got some really good research out of that. And then we realized that this market is dominated by a lot of larger actors and they will need a lot of tests before they actually commercialize something like this. So the entry barriers in this market was really high. After two years, like 2018, we realized that if we want to make revenues soon and not later, <laughs> we probably should focus on another application first. This is really cool. We can pursue it um, on the side, but we really need to find another application that will make the revenues. At the same instance that we thought this, we were contacted by an actor in the organic personal care industry. They were looking for an alternative to, to silicas that they were using. There was an organic uh, origin that could be used for cleansing applications. And they tested out our material and they were able to show that our material was superior, both in time of speed of absorption, oil and sweat, and yeah. also in time of the amount. So based on that, we started to do more research in the personal care industry and realized that our material can solve a lot of problems in the personal care industry. It's a truly multifunctional material. So it works really well as a moisturizer or cleanser. It can block pollution from entering the skin, creates a really good feeling of the cream, like a sensory modifier. We're also doing studies to use this material to be able to boost the SPF in sunscreen formulations. So far, we have positive indications in vitro, but not the claim yet since we've not done it in vivo. How did they find you? So they read an article about our material and about the use of our material solar and, and read that it was from nanopore silica. And then they re were really intrigued about the, the potential of finding more organic sources of that. So there was such a coincidence uh, that led us uh, to that. We, we can create a lot of good benefits to the products and our material works more as a drop-in product. It was easy for them to just change, sometimes even easier to use our products than other products. The entry barriers in that industry was really low. And also the, a lot of ingredients that are used are being uh, released to our seas and, and lakes and creating a lot of harm. This is something that the industry is really keen about solving and they really want to go towards more organic uh, products. That was also really interesting for us to ride on that trend. Sophie, if you had to redo that phase where you're trying to find the first application to go after, how would you do have done it differently so that you could have actually on your own landed in terms of skincare? How would you think about how to look for the market for your product? My heart is pounding for technology <laughs> to begin with. There should have been someone in the room with a more commercial mindset. I mean, we were focusing on different applications. We looked at what can the technology do and in which industry would that fit. But we didn't have like a column for like, what is the ease of entering into this market? What are, what are the market barriers? I think we, we really should have had that with us. And I think that's something that I've learned during the process. I really love the work we're doing and the customers we are working with in, in this industry and the impact we are seeing already now that we are making on the industry with what we're doing and uh, really pushing the circularity and the edges on, on what is um, good products to use for personal care, both for our health and for our environment. So you now found the, the beauty or the skincare segment. You're starting to think about how to surf that 
business. What is it that you did next? Was it about funding? Was it team? How did you go about delivering what you needed to do for that industry? It was a combination of all three <laughs> at the same time. And what was really important was to attract interest from customers and really see that this was of interest not only for one, but for the whole industry. And that was something that we received quite quite fast. And, and based on, on the interest that we were seeing, because we only had a small prototype facility, and we raised uh, further funding to be able to build up our current pilot or smaller commercial facility that we can produce material from now based on the interest that we saw from the market. And, and after that, we also started to, to hiring uh, some more personnel to drive that facility and also someone to work with me on, on the sales side. We, we are now selling out all the production that we have from our pilot plants. Uh, it's still a pilot plant, so we're really looking forward to have a larger plant operational during uh, Q2, Q3. And next year we will start during Q2, but it's always a startup phase uh, when we really are entering to, to real commercial scale because now we're in the phase where we're actually turning down orders from customers because we can simply not deliver from the capacity uh, that we have now. You just need to wait because it takes time to build and then you harness uh, on that and make sure that you have the interest from the market whilst you're doing that. So, so that could be frustrating to some extent. I can just imagine the sheer scale of what you're trying to do in terms of taking something unknown, finding a market for it, building facilities, raising funding, finding a team, constantly having to prove and wait for the next event to happen and to progress your business. How did you manage your personal journey? You want to make an impact, but how did you balance that with your personal side? To some extent, not so well. In the beginning phase, when you start to like draft everything up and everything is on like the visionary stage, then you might have some work-life balance to begin with. But I guess there was a phase when we had like raised our first round, then we were about to raise the second round. There were too few people to do what we were doing. We didn't have the funds to hire more people. And I, that phase is just a blur for me. I remember working a lot of hours. There was tackling fundraising and customers at the same time, tackling like the production and I were everywhere. I actually ended up in, in during that phase and having some like physical reactions to stress. But I think now you just need to go through that those stages and, and maybe should have asked for more money or resources earlier if, if I should uh, think back on, on how I could have done this differently. But I think in many cases, you just need to go through those phases. Did you have advisors or mentors or people to fill in the holes in terms of maybe areas where you did not have as much experience? I had a really good board that did help me, but of course they could not do the work for me. And, and they were also realizing that we really need to raise the funds and I'm raising the funds <laughs> to be able to hire more people. Then we need to support the customers to make sure that nothing falls apart. So I guess that phase when you're raising funds to be able to, to hire more people that can help you and your business, because it was me working with all the commercial parts and then there was the production team. That was like what we had. And, and we didn't really afford to, to hire someone more on the commercial side until later. And maybe looking back, we should have hired someone for me to bounce ideas with on the commercial side and not doing everything by myself. When I started to hire people, I was like, we, we need production expertise. That was, this is what, what we need and, and I can do it so far. But I guess it came to a point where I realized that that was so stupid. I couldn't do it by myself. But after raising the Series A, now we're 12 people 
working uh, in the company, about to hire a 13 person. And now I'm realizing that the work that I was doing is five people doing that work now. <laughs> so I guess when you're looking back to it, you're like, how did I manage everything? How did I keep my focus whilst doing everything at the same time? But now I'm really fortunate to be able to feel that I can have a more work-life balance. And I think that's so important, realizing that now when I'm in that phase, when it's actually possible to have some kind of balance, that you get so much smarter and you do so much smarter decisions when you have some kind of balance and get some uh, inspiration uh, from from outside work. You know, I've heard this from so many entrepreneurs and I think it's such an important thing to be able to figure out what you need to do when you're stressed out. And I think everybody has different ways in which they cope with it. So I I have one entrepreneur that said she had an executive coach Mm -hmm. that helped her to delegate and to manage and to just sort of think through things. Another person, my brother said what he did was he formed a group of like four or five other entrepreneurs that were in a similar stage to where he was. And they would meet once a month. And it was just really good to have people that are going through the same thing as he was and talk about things that he probably couldn't talk with anyone else about what he was going through. And then someone else said the same thing which you did, which is, I wish I had just hired people earlier. But obviously that depends on how much money you have and where you are in the stage of process. So it's not always a possibility. I'm wondering, what was your coping mechanism? How did you cope with that very stressful phase? And do you have any advice for others? I think something that I never compromised on was exercise. Even though it was really stressful, I always had my three hours of exercise a week because that kept me sane. <laughs> and then, of course, I had my, my board, like a support network. And I do had some other entrepreneurs in my network as well that I could talk to. And that was really beneficial. All the things that you're saying, I tried to do as well. But I guess the struggle when you're an entrepreneur is that even though you have like a support network, when, when you get into the real problem that you have, uh, most of, often they're so unique because you're creating a unique business. So the expert on solving it is probably you. <laughs> so I guess that's the, the struggle that there's no, no one that really can help you they can give you advice but you are the, the, the person that knows how to solve the problem and I think that's the challenge that even though we have this support system around you and trying to keep yourself sane through exercising is that sometimes you're left with really hard decisions that's of course challenging but I guess that's also what drives many entrepreneurs that they can endure this, this situation, take these fast decisions and really get a kick of it to be able to see that something is growing and that they can make it well and problem solving. That's something I've always had in the back of my mind that has kept me sane as an entrepreneur. It was actually my first chairman of the board that told me that when I was coming to him and said that I have a lot of problems now. And he was like, well, that's good. Congrats. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm telling you that I have a lot of problems. And he was like, well, you're a startup company. If you don't have problems, then someone else has been doing this before. So problems is the opportunity for the company to grow and actually do something valuable. And so that's something I've learned during the road and something that I keep with me all the time. That's what's, what's triggering me and, and trying to solve them in, in the best way. I love that quote. Let's talk about two other things that comes up often. One is team, one is around funding. I want to go to team first because people is everything in those early stages. Tell me, what is your hiring philosophy? How are you thinking about building your company, the people in it? What do you think you've done well? And what are things that you would do differently? 
in the beginning when you have a startup, it's always hard to hire because you cannot pay that much salaries and you really need to find persons that love uh, the vision of the company and, and really wants to, to go the extra mile. It's hard to have someone saying that they love what you're doing and, and really having them act on it. I think we have had um, both successes and failures in actually getting people in the company that really have this mindset that problems are opportunities that we just need to solve and really are pushing themselves and, and really have the startup mentality and, and want, want to, to grow with that. I think it's hard uh, to know if the person is right for that. Is there anything that you found is a good proxy for seeing if that is there in a person that you're trying to hire? Something that I've tried to look for is that when you talk about keeping my mind problems uh, you have in the company and try to approach like we be like we want need to solve this in the company is that if they seem scared or intrigued, if you see that their eyes start to light up, that's something that I'm trying to keep when hiring. I think that could be a struggle when you're building the business that some people can be really good for the business in the beginning, but maybe not later on. And that's a real struggle to realize, do you have the right team for now? Or do you have the right team for yesterday? And also I keep that in mind when you're growing the team that you're not hiring the same person as you have. For example, in our case, we went from more a research company to a production company. Then you need to hire production expertise and the company needs to be more production oriented over time. And that means that the persons that are working with research might feel disconnected. To have that honest discussions, can we move forward with this or do you need to, to step out because you want to focus on research and we're not really focusing on that that type of research that you love anymore. So that's been a struggle, I would say. That's such an important point, mm -hmm. Sophie, because I think there are cases where you can invest in people and help them develop mm -hmm. and grow with the company and the needs of the company. And then there are cases where there's just a complete disconnect in terms of what the company needs mm -hmm and what the person wants to do. It's not easy to know which bucket they are. And as a good leader or manager, you need to understand that. In your case, you said it very nicely, research versus production. It's a completely different mindset in terms of a person's interests and motivations. There's two different camps and you have to be very careful which one um, you use. Okay, interesting. Let's talk about funding. You've just finished raising your Series A. What is it that you did to find the right investors in your early stages? I think it was really important for us and something that we had tried not to compromise on. And sometimes during the journey, there's up and downs. And you're like, well, let us just lose this and take whatever it gets in. Something that I think we've been doing well is that let fundraising take some time and really try to make sure that the investors that we get into the company are aligned with our vision of the company and that we really get along and, and like the investors. And I think we've been really fortunate to so far been only been able to bring on investors that we feel that with, that we love working with, that love our vision, uh, that really loves what the company uh, are doing and not only money, something that has been a no-go for us, which is basically the whole venture capital in, uh, industries, uh, companies that have this like set return on investments for your five years, that works for software, but it doesn't work when you're building facilities and when you're building technology from the ground up that is uh, hardware, then it takes longer time to build a business. I think it's really important to, to don't set yourself in a situation where you're 
have investors on board that expect you to do an exit in five years and then you're not doing that because that will only create frustration and problems in, in the owner circle. And the investors we have on board are really long-term investors that really see the long-term vision that doesn't have uh, the instant need of, of a return on investment in a set amount of years that is really flexible in relation to what's happening in the business. That's something that we've been able to do fairly well, even though it has taken time. Yeah, I think one of the things you said to me, which helped you to raise money on good terms, was the ability to actually have a pilot to show. Talk to me about how did that come about? How did you build the pilot? What money did you use? And why do you feel like that helped you to raise money the right way? used a seed round to build the pilot. We started to build this pilot due to wanting to show that we can scale the business. Um, of course, like scale the production, but also due to us starting to see some interest from, from the person care industry. And then we saw a potential of actually running a pilot and testing and selling at the same time, which I guess is not usual. And it has its pros and cons because then you get to this stage, you need to do, a, do testings that can sacrifice production towards making sure that you will have the most efficient process once reaching larger scale. And of course, we will invest a lot of capex in that. So you really want to make sure that that is as good as possible. But on the other hand, you want to sustain the market and to be able to make sure that there is a market when you have built up the facility. So I guess it's it's a real balance there. And I think we've been able to track that okay. Of course, there's always ups and downs in relation to that. And now we're in a phase when we have more orders and we cannot say to customers that we can maximize production because we need to do some t- further testings. So we're really trying to do our best and balance that, that. But we really have amazing customers that love what we're doing and that are appreciating that we are taking our time in the pilot to also make sure that the production will run uh, as good as possible in the larger plant. But that's definitely a balance and, and not often that common from, from my understanding in relation to the industry. Normally you do the pilot and then you uh, make sure that it works and then you start commercial production and then you have uh, signed some orders to customers and then you start to deliver. But I think it's been really valuable for us to actually start selling already in the pilot because we learned so much from the interactions with customers that have changed how we're producing the product to some extent, that they're really making sure that the product that we are launching from the larger plant is really what the market wants. Lovely. So what are you currently working on? What is the stage you're in right now? What are your challenges that you're working through right now? The challenges is the... The interest that we are seeing, <laughs> the problem with uh, not being able to deliver all that interest yet and, and sustaining that interest until we can we have the larger facility up and running. And of course, it's building up the, the larger facility and making sure that it will run properly when we started in February and making sure that we have the, the interest and there. Then I guess we, we had some struggles when building a facility, unfortunately, that is related to raw material prices increasing mm-hmm. and during COVID. So we will do a bit of a follow-up round you can say on our series a uh, round uh, during q2 this year uh, to just offset uh, the increase of the cost of to build the facility to be able to make cash flow positivity because we need some further investments to be able to build up the full capacity uh, to be able to reach that how did you determine where to place your facility obviously proximity as you're developing the process and the research, et cetera, makes a lot of sense, but there's a cost itself. So how did you determine that? It's a struggle for us and also 
the, the positive thing with our business <laughs> is that what we are doing is so new and unique. So it's really hard to, to get someone else to understand how to do it. And we have the expertise and we have built the company around that expertise. And the person that uh, have built the company wants to live in Sweden. <laughs> so we need to create the business around the expertise we, we have. And also in the large facility now, we do a lot of automation to be able to keep down the OPEX and really making sure that the people are used like, for their brains and not only for manual work um, in, in the best way. Another aspect is also that we quite early on, and, and I guess that's proximity to Sweden, we really wanted to, to look for potentials of making our production process as sustainable as possible. So we looked into the source of using wastewater, you could say, to, to grow the algae. Mm. And we found a really interesting partner in the city in Sweden that we're working with. They're a land-based fish farm. They're like trying to push the boundaries and making fish even more sustainable than there are in land-based fish farm now. Uh, really pushing the, the ecological in, in fish farming. Uh, and we have a collaboration ship. So we use their wastewater and excess CO2 to grow our algae. And they get uh, oxygen back as well as clean water. And after the extraction of the algae, then we get uh, a biomass that is used to produce um, biogas and uh, fertilizers. Now, at the first instance, of girls looking into how part of that could be used for even food feed uh, or food. So it was that we could find a partner that we can create this industrial symbiosis with that we really wanted to, to create, where we see a huge win-win, both in terms of sustainability, but also costs. Both our businesses are cutting our costs whilst making our businesses more sustainable, which I think is a lovely concept. That's so cool, Sophie. I think what you're saying is don't just think cost only, because if you just thought cost, you would have said, okay, let's outsource to some other place where labor is cheaper. But you really thought about the whole system and you found something that is going to be cost effective. But more than that, you're putting together a whole system that's going to give you the product that you're looking to build, but also in a sustainable manner. I think that's really fascinating and hopefully interesting for others to also think through. Great. Last question for you before we go to this rapid round. What is next step for the Swedish algae factory? What's your future and vision? I guess we're in the, the scaling phase now uh, and we hope to in, in 2023 reach cash flow positivity. But of course, we, we are having a vision to be able to build like 10 Swedish algae factories until 2030. That might be aggressive, but I guess the reason for it is that we really want to create an impact and really want to, to show that you can create an industry that is climate positive. And that's what we're trying to push with our business model to show that you can actually create positive things for the environment. You don't only need to talk about cutting away and making stuff less negative. You can actually think from the beginning on how to make it positive. And we really want to inspire the industry to do that. And we really see that we can, can do that whilst creating a lot of impact uh, from the use of our main product. Algegata is branded on in the personal care industry, but also from 2024 and forward, I think we should be able to launch something in the solar industry. We also have projects where the material is now tested to be used in batteries to increase um, capacity. And we don't want to go too technical <laughs> on that. So there are a lot of application areas where this material can be used. And also, as mentioned, we are producing the material 
in a way where we're limiting eutrophication and making sure that we don't need to produce nitrogen and phosphorus in really energy-intensive and harmful ways. Like there's a lot of mining involved in creating phosphorus that we need for growth and really making sure that we can recycle nutrients in a good way and using the organic biomass of the algae to do so and really be helpful in creating a better food system. And so we, we see that we can make impact in a lot of aspects on what we're doing. And of course, we want to do that in as huge of a scale as possible. Lovely. And are you planning to always be a material company? So you're going to basically supply the algae-based material for these different applications. You're not actually going to create applications in those areas. Or are you thinking that you might actually do that as well in the future? That's the, the ground philosophy. Uh, but I think in some applications, we, we need to push the boundaries and help the customers understand how the product needs to be used a bit more. So that we need to not only be a material supplier, but also creating the knowledge and the basic formula for them to use the material. So that's something that we probably will do, like um, creating the, the settings for, for how to use the product and, and selling that with the product. But I guess for now, the philosophy is as a business model, mainly sell the material with some with some knowledge, potentially, that can change. If, if there's something you learn from running a business, that you need to be really open for a change because stuff shifts really soon. I guess that's a good thing with being a small company, that you can act on that and that you have that opportunity and you have that mentality. And I guess you should never lose that strength of being flexible about uh, what potential business models that could be of interest for the future. I love that. Well, that's the formal part of the podcast. I want to jump into my rapid round, which is just a few questions that are outside of what we just talked about with your business. And I usually start with what's your favorite book? Any book that's made an impact on you as a person or as an entrepreneur? Oh, it's so many. <laughs> I, love, I love reading books, but I guess maybe this is a bit cliche, but uh, like reading Paulo Coelho, The Alchemist, that strikes something with me. And I think that's something that we're trying to do in business as well. Try to find the beauty and harness that. And I think that's something I've taken with me a lot from that book. Okay. What about a productivity tool or tip or hack that you have that helps you be productive? Writing down small tasks on to-do lists just taking them off. It's so productive. And then you get in an even more productive mode. Put everything you're doing into small pieces and just tick them off. Do you use an analog pad or do you have a digital? Actually, I have everything in my phone. So I have it with me everywhere. Really break it down and see that you're progressing every day, even though it's small stuff, because then you normally get more productive because uh, you feel more productive. Apparently, there's a biological dopamine type of effect that you get from crossing off items yeah. on a to-do list. What about your favorite city in Europe? I'm actually a lot of country girl. I love nature, but I also love big cities and I love like exploring new stuff. The, the favorite city for me is the city that I have not yet explored because that feels so new and exciting. Okay. But if there is uh, an element of, of nature in it, then that's generally the city I choose to, to travel. Is, is there one in Europe that you particularly like that you've gone to so far? When I was in Italy, I was hiking in Cinque Terre between the villages. Uh, it was so nice. All the farms with the, the citrus and it was like a bit challenging as well because it was really uh, steep. So it was also like a sense of 
achievement and also like seeing a lot of nature. It's, it's a weird personality trait of me maybe, but I have a struggle with just lying on the beach. I need to keep active and I love diving as well. So there's like a lot of diving trips uh, that I've been doing. And uh, the recent one before the pandemic was to uh, Sardinia and, and I love that. It comes with loving the oceans and algae. Yeah, exactly. Okay, then the last question is a favorite quote, something that you've read that you like a lot or that you've come up with on your own for yourself, for your team. Problems are opportunities to grow. That's something that's always helping me with a lot of aspects of my life, of just trying to not get defeated of problems, but just seeing that as an opportunity to grow as a human being or uh, growing the, the business and making it um, even more compatible. Well, thank you, Sophie, for being on my podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm fascinated with what you're doing at the Swedish Algae Factory. And I look forward to hearing more about your journey. Thank you for being a guest. Yeah, thank you as well. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building.